Well, we live in a society that prizes certain things highly. Uh, if you're attractive, you're prized highly. If you have influence in one way or another, or popularity, celebrity, we prize power, especially as it comes with wealth and status. And we also live in a world where there are churches that promote the same set of virtues as if they are the blessings of God. One very famous minister said it this way, when you declare favor over your life and over your future, God will make things happen that should have never happened. Our attitude should be, I'm coming out of debt and I'm saying so. This will be my best year and I'm saying so. I will overcome every obstacle and I'm saying so, and I will accomplish my dreams. I'm saying so. You see, no weapon formed against me will ever prosper. I will live out my days in good health, with a clear mind, with a good memory, with clarity of thought. My mind is alert. My sense is sharp. My youth is being renewed. You must prophesy health, long life, and pro productivity. Your words will become your reality. Well, we all know at one level uh, that sort of teaching is problematic, but at another level, all of us are infected by that same disease. We may not just say it so starkly. Uh, our cultural values have surely influenced how we view the Christian life, and in particular, how we view God's favor. I mean, let me ask you, how would you know when God is blessing you? How do you know when God is blessing you? What does it look like? How could you mark it? You know, if you're to count your blessings one by one, how would you do it? I mean, my kids are doing well. My career is successful. My health is good. Finances are in order. We're reasonably comfortable or even better. My attitude is positive. I have a couple nice vacations planned. I mean, how would you go about going through the list to know if your life is under God's favor. You see, deep down, we all are prosperity gospel preachers. We all believe that God's blessing is defined by things going well according to what we can see. Right? We know God's blessing us because look at how good things are going. That has to be, surely, the blessing of God. Blessings look like blessings. But hardly any of us would think that God's blessings might be that we lose our job or struggle in our marriage or have a child born with a disability or are no longer being heard by our older children or that we've been struck with a terminal illness, or that we've once again fallen to temptation. I mean, that is absurd. To think of those things as a blessing would ultimately be foolish. I mean, those are surely curses, or they look like curses. They don't look like blessings. But then, of course, there is this biggest blessing that God ever showered on humanity. And according to Paul, it's God's Son being hung on a cross that promotes shame and gore. 
And if we were just going to look at it, if you were just going to look at it and see it, for what it, uh, see it for what it was and name it for what you could perceive about it by sight, you would say that is all and only curse. I mean, that's what naked sight says about the cross. And we know, at least at one level, surely it is cursed, but at another level, God has told us it is the greatest blessing that has ever entered into our situation as fallen humanity. And Paul wants us to see that that requires us to rethink how we look at God's way of working in our life or blessing us in this world or even asking us how we should follow him. See, we're going to discuss the ramifications of this for the next couple of months under the title of Converse Christianity, uh, God's way of doing things in the world that don't look like the way that we would do them. You know, when the least become the greatest and your weakness being your greatest strength, or when you lose, maybe then you're, wearing, uh, you're winning. Uh, we're going to look at this uh, and newsflash, you are going to hate it. I don't like it all that much. But Paul says, even in our text this morning, that the cross is God's wisdom revealed. That God has displayed his wisdom to the watching world in the shape of a crucified God. This is God's wisdom. When we think of wisdom, we think of the things of, you know, how do I live well in this world? How does God give instruction that works in this place that he's made? And God says, I'm going to give you the key piece to wisdom, and it's shaped like a cross. And that's the wisdom that I want you to carry with you, not just into when you look at how does one get forgiven of their sins, but what does the shape of the life in this world take in order that we may live well in this world? Somehow the cross teaches us the art of living well. Uh, And if that's true, you really are going to hate it. Uh, But if you can get past the distaste, uh, you might actually find life there. You see, the cross for Paul isn't merely where our sins are forgiven. As we've said, it's the wisdom of God. It stretches over the whole of our Christian life. As Luther said, the cross is our theology. Or as Paul says here in Corinthians, I've resolved to know nothing save Christ and him crucified. And then he goes and talks about a whole bunch of other stuff. Or does he? Is the ethic that Paul promotes, for instance, in Corinth, divorced from the crucifixion of Jesus? I would argue, as we'll see, it's not at all. The cross shapes how we view all kinds of things how you view your struggle in this life. It shapes how you view Christian growth, how you view what sanctification and holiness look like, how you view what loss means in this world. What is suffering and how does the cross teach us how to look at suffering in a way that would actually be in accord with God's wisdom and not the wisdom of the world? How do we look at things like weakness? Or how do we gauge wealth? You see, the cross teaches us that God prospers often where things are lacking. That God is present, that he is with you 
in the mess, not just when it's all cleaned up. Oftentimes it's when we come out of something, we say, oh, God, God was there, he delivered me, but somehow in the middle of it, he wasn't there making himself known. But you see, God is working in your life, dear Christian, in the ugliest parts, just as well as he's working in the parts that you find comely. He's building you up right where things are completely falling apart. And you are actually, according to Scripture, strongest right where you are most fragile and often most afraid. That God says, that's actually where I'm most at work and where you're best off. (laughs) Do you like it yet? We could skip. We could go to a different... uh, I mean, this is obviously hard for us to imagine, but Paul will teach us things like, I boast in my weakness. That's what I brag about. I mean, why in the world would that be a a place where you start boasting? I mean, who goes around saying, well, you know, the doctor upped my psych meds by double since I'm struggling so bad, you know, praise the Lord. Or 15 years in, still haven't been promoted. God is clearly at work. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I fell again. Yep, same exact sin. That's the one. Because God's good. Or how about when we ask a brother and sister, or brother and sister, how are you? And they say, everything is going wonderfully. I mean, how often do we reply like, oh no, I'll be praying for you. See, that's not how we frame the world. It's ridiculous to think of it that way, is it not? Or is it? The wisdom of God is foolishness to the watching world, according to Paul, which means it's foolishness to your natural senses. If we get this by the end of the series, you won't be able to, we won't be able to look at life in the same way or frame it in the same way. Because the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world are polar opposites, and God's wisdom ends at a cross, which should teach you that what you're expecting out of God or from God or what it's going to look like when God is being good and at work for your salvation isn't always what you would have prescribed. So with that in mind, let us at least begin this morning with our first point, the conventional wisdom of the world. You'll notice Paul says in verse 19, as he's quoting Isaiah, that God is going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. And then he continues in verse 20, and he says, you know, where is the wise? Where is the the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? And he starts to say, like, you know, Jews... They would seek signs. You know, if God's who he's supposed to be, he'll give them a sign. And Greeks, they would seek wisdom. If God is going to impress the Greeks, he'll come, very much like Aristotle or Plato. And he says, instead, he comes in a cross, which is a scandal on, is a stumbling block to the Jew, and it's foolishness to the Greek. You know, Paul comes with this message to the church that he planted in Corinth, and because We're going to be covering all kinds of subjects. This is tough because we're not going to be in Corinthians the whole time. But very quickly, uh, in order to understand what Paul is even doing here, you have to understand Corinth just a little bit. 
uh, you know, Corinth had been devastated for some time in about 146 or so, but it was rebuilt under Julius Caesar in 44 BC. Uh, and if you know its location, you know that it's a, it's a coastal city. It's at an isthmus, which meant it was a major thoroughfare, both for travel north and south, but also even by sea, it could be traveled across because it was so narrow. And because of that, it became a major trade route. Uh, and because it was being rebuilt, uh, and if you weren't already of good stock, moving there meant there was prospects for you. There were so many ways to make a living there and to become wealthy uh, and to really make a name for yourself. A lot of people move from their homes to make their fortune there, to become somebody. It was a place where your dreams really could come true. Uh, there was a lot of money. There were a lot of religions, and there was a lot with that of sexual promiscuity, and it was very status conscious. It was full of self-made somebodies. Um, maybe you don't think of it this way anymore, but this is what California used to be like, right? This is what, uh, I remember we would visit Iowa when I was young in my, in my junior high years. That was our family. For every one of my cousins said, someday I'm going to go to California when I get older. Because, you know, it was this place I ever want to go. You know, it was the American dream, this westward expansion, and we are the end of the West. You know, we are this coastal place where really people did come to make their dreams come true. And in Corinth, not only did they have all this status, it was a place that was full of entertainment. And the form of entertainment, you know, they didn't have a Hollywood, uh, but what they did have was this reality of, uh, you know, these public forums where people would display the art of rhetoric. You know, if you didn't have TV or podcasts or movies, what'd you do? You went and listened to people speak. And at this particular time in history, this uh, under, under the time of the sophists, it really wasn't about, you know, the content of what you debated. It was really the character of how you did it. How eloquent were you? How, how beautifully could you express what you were expressing, even if you were an utterly empty suit? Were you impressive to those who were hearing? It wasn't about virtue, but about how you could extol yourself, how eloquent and persuasive and entertaining you were. Ben Witherington writes, Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. I mean, there really was uh, the idea that public recognition or how popular you were was more important about whether what you said was factual. Could you gain followers? Did people care about what you were saying? And so in such a culture, a person's sense of worth was based on recognition by others, not on one's values based on, for instance, noble accomplishments or virtue, you know, gaining followers was key. I mean, can you imagine living somewhere where it didn't matter the content of what was being said or how intelligent or useful, but all that mattered was if you were attractive enough and people liked it and followed you. I mean, try, your, try to imagine a place like that. I know this is ancient history. So if you can, this is way back there, nothing like here. Um, and you'll notice Paul's concerned He's concerned because he wants to make sure that what the Corinthians view as important isn't dictated by what the culture views as important. 
He doesn't want them making their meaning based on these things of status and wealth and honor and followers and outward attractiveness. He's concerned that it's impacting their way of life as a church. I mean, they were starting to make factions in the church of who they like best. Well, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. They've gathered again around their favorite celebrity within the church, and Paul has to rebuke them for it. Their sexual ethics are influenced by the ethics of Corinth, and Paul has to rebuke someone in the church for that. Their view of their own importance and self-inflation and who should get the most at the Lord's Supper is influenced very much by what's already going on in the culture. The rich go first and the poor go home hungry. There's a wisdom that the world has, and Paul's concern is that the church would mistake it for actual wisdom and start to live in accord with it. And so in response, you'll notice there's this converse wisdom of God. Paul says the word of the cross is folly to the world, but to us, it's the power of God. He says the crucified Christ is both the wisdom of God and the power of God, and that God's foolishness is wiser than men, and his weakness is stronger than men. The word of the cross is foolishness. I mean, how offensive was it? We've, you know, traveled far in time, and so we hear the cross, and we sing about it, and it gives us warm feelings. You know, we have jewelry with it on there. We put it on our church signs. You know, the the cross was not used as a symbol in uh, church life up through the fourth century because people were still dying on crosses, and it was so horrible to even think about and so shameful and, and so gruesome that the idea of being like, well, let's celebrate with that just wasn't on the mind of the early church. And sure enough, in the fourth century, it was no longer really a popular form of public execution. And that's when the church began to embrace it more as something that they could uh, honor as far as uh, because their, their, their memory had forgotten uh, kind of the, the, the brutality of it. But notice for the Jews, Paul says it's a scandal on, it's a scandal. And why? Because what does the cross say to them? It says exactly what the word of God says about it, right? Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So surely our hero can't die there. The Romans think it's folly because it's so shameful. It's a place for criminals and slaves to die. Surely not a God. And God says, instead, if you want to understand my wisdom, you have to look there. Because right there, it's on display. That is your hope and salvation. This is how I win. I mean, who could think this up? Herein lies the mystery of our way in the world, that God's wisdom is contrary. It is the absolute opposite. It is converse of the world's wisdom. His ways are not our ways, as he says. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And no one would have ever looked at the cross and said, good plan. I like it. You know, that's exactly what I thought was going to happen. No one which teaches us a principle that we need to get a hold of, that we cannot look at what God is doing in our life and in our suffering and say, oh, I like it, I get it. You shouldn't expect to be able to discern 
God's ways of working simply by your sight. Because we never looked at the cross and said, I applaud the plan that you have. And so in the midst of your own suffering, you shouldn't expect to be able to see it and say like, well, of course, I see how this all works out in the end. And yet it doesn't mean that it isn't the wisdom of God. I mean, Paul said, as it is written, no one understands. No one seeks God. No one. No one understands God's ways. The God who says dying destroys death, weakness is strength, glory will be found in shame. No one would have considered this for a God unless he revealed himself this way. I mean, Nietzsche hates Christianity for this very reason. Not because he doesn't understand God, because he sees what the Bible says and he's utterly repulsed by the way that God presents himself. He says Christianity remains to this day the greatest misfortune for humanity. And why? Because he says, look at who gathered around Christianity. He says the majority becomes master, democracy, which with its Christian instincts triumphed. Christianity was not national. It was not based on race. It appealed to all varieties of men that had been disinherited by life. He's like, it gathered all these losers, and they felt they had a place to belong. It had allies everywhere. Christianity has the rancor of the sick at its very core, the instinct against the healthy, against health. Everything that is well, constituted and proud and gallant and above all beautiful, gives offense to Christianity's ears and eyes. God on the cross... Is man always to miss the frightful inner significance of this symbol, he says? And somehow Christianity was thus a victory. A nobler attitude of mind has forever been destroyed because of it. Which is why, you know, you probably know Nietzsche mostly by, you know, the the famous uh, 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 idea that might makes right, or, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the weak basically should step aside, right? Uh, uh, we will to power and the strong should dominate the weak. And he says, nature says that. He says it's so obvious. And what Christianity does is it gives significance to all sorts of people who don't deserve it. They should have been the castaways. That's when we were noble and we understood what virtue was. And then comes this God on the cross, And that which was wise gets set aside for this utter foolishness. You'll notice God's ways to us will always look foolish and weak and ridiculous. Which means if you're judging your life by what's strong and prospering and well and saying, well, that's God's work in my life, probably not. (laughs) It's probably not. I mean, don't get me wrong, God does bless us with good things, but that's not where God is only at work in your life is in those things. If you look at the ugliest thing, the hardest thing, the thing that you would remove tomorrow if you could, God says, I'm there and I'm present in love and in power. That's where I'm blessing you. But notice Paul says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You see, if the cross is true, 
It says something about the world's way of being. It says that this world is vain and empty, that it's a dead end. I mean, the ones we look up to naturally, God has shown to be naked and weak. Our own powers, God doesn't countenance, and our ways of wisdom, he considers foolish. And instead, he puts in its place the cross, and he says, this is your wisdom, it's your whole theology, and I want you to know that we are going to preach Christ and him crucified only, because that is going to be what shapes the entirety of your walk in this age. Which means so much of our normal Christian experience will be on its face, unattractive. That's my Christian, that's our church growth strategy for the year. We're going to put this on the sign and see how it goes. No. Uh, so let's close with this. What's the cash value? I mean, are you still interested in Christianity if that's what's being offered? I mean, why would we be? You know, why would we say, let's talk about this and not only talk about it, but embrace it uh, as, as Christian theology? So you can only see it as beautiful if, if you know a shame that you can't quite shake off, no matter how much you've accomplished, no, how, no matter how much you make, no matter how many surgeries you've undergone or how much weight you've lost or how many rungs you've climbed. I mean, if you've ever tried and failed and have no answer on how you're going to succeed, or if you're running on empty and you see the wreckage is real, or if you've grown old and tired and just desperately want to be forgiven, if you wonder if you're ever going to have time to make all the amends that you need to make, Only then would such a theology become beautiful. If you're broken and desperate, or if Paul said, if you're weak, not many of you were wise or noble, but God called the weak and the offscouring of the world. You see, we're haunted by the idea that Christianity comes with a promise of stability, right? And it will give us deeper relationships and health. But of course, often our theology doesn't account for the realities that all of us will experience pain in the future, that there's difficulty ahead. There's all kinds of things that come that we have no answer to. And it's in those moments that telling the truth about these things matters. There'll be mistakes and sins and violations by you and toward you. There'll be suffering. And you will want to be whole. You will want a hope that somehow goes beyond the wisdom of this world because you've tried everything and it doesn't work. And when those days hit and you are weak and needy and hopeless, then and only then will the wisdom of God shine forth as good news. And it is good news. And God brings it to us this way because he's gracious enough to let you know ahead of time 
that it's all a dead end. That you can't win here. That the wisdom of this world won't work because at best it all ends at the graveyard and before then you're going to die a thousand deaths anyway. All to remind you that you need something more. And there's nothing in this age, there's nothing in the wisdom of this world that can be offered that will give you what you need. And so God comes on a cross and he gives you everything that you weren't looking for, but everything that you've always actually needed and wanted, even if you couldn't define it. And so may we find this cross beautiful and as we go on in the weeks ahead, see how it shapes how we walk in this world. And may we then be those who not only glory in the cross, but live in such a way that give these things away to others. Let us pray.